From the wilderness of Kodiak Island, Alaska, this is Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier with your host, Robin Bearfield. In a land full of peril and vicious animals, humans are the most dangerous predators of all. An electrician found the badly beaten and defiled body of 48-year-old Martha Hansen behind the Elks Club on 3rd Avenue in downtown Anchorage. She was naked except for a white sock on her left foot. When police detectives arrived at the scene, they were determined to do everything they could to find the animal who had perpetrated this horrible crime. They put in hours of dogged perseverance and executed a forensic technique few investigators thought was possible. Welcome to Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. I'm your host, Robin Bearfield, and I'm broadcasting to you from the heart of the Kodiak National Wildlife Refuge on Kodiak Island in Alaska. Alaskan investigators do not always have the perfect crime labs or specialists trained in cutting-edge forensic techniques. Sometimes they must educate themselves. In the mid-1970s, the Alaska State Troopers had no crime lab, so Alaska State Trooper Jim McCann and some of his colleagues worked on their own time to improve their forensic techniques and to develop a police protocol for major homicide investigations. They read books and took college classes to enhance their skills in collecting evidence. They practiced techniques to identify and collect hair and fiber samples, studied blood spatter evidence, and learned how to read the patterns from a shotgun stippling to determine how far away a gun was from a body when it was fired. They studied and then practiced what they learned. In this case, Captain Bill Gifford of the Anchorage Police Department decided to try an experimental technique he'd read about in a journal. He and other Anchorage homicide detectives had tried to retrieve fingerprints from human skin before. They had not yet succeeded, but with each attempt, they learned more. Gifford purchased a few dollars worth of supplies from the hardware store and went to work. His results cemented the outcome of this case. On August 8, 1996, the Anchorage police arrived on the scene of a homicide in downtown Anchorage. The body lay just behind the Elks Club in an area overgrown by brush. Although just steps from the city center, the untended site had grown into a tangle of bushes and weeds. Police found drug paraphernalia and liquor bottles littering the ground, and the thick brush made it the perfect area to imbibe outside the watchful eyes of the authorities. When detectives arrived on the scene, they noted the nude body of a middle-aged Native woman. Her discarded clothes lay nearby and she exhibited signs of blunt force trauma to her head and body. She had a bite mark on her left breast and had suffered a sexual attack. 
Her killer had sexually violated her both pre- and post-mortem. After torturing her, he strangled her to death. Detectives ran her fingerprints and quickly learned that her name was Martha Hansen. They notified her daughter and began searching for the killer. Martha, or Marty Hansen, grew up in the tiny Alaska native village of Tyonek on the Kenai Peninsula. Over the years, the population of Tyonek has fluctuated between 100 and 200 people. According to Martha's ex-husband, Dave, Martha lost three sisters and her first husband within the span of two years, and the deaths caused her to spiral into depression. She began to drink heavily and would sometimes disappear for four or five days, and he wouldn't know where she was. Although he loved her, he couldn't handle her drinking, and they finally divorced. To escape the alcohol issues of the village, Martha took her six kids and moved to Anchorage. Unfortunately, her demons followed her. Martha's daughter, Tina, describes Martha as a wonderful mother who enjoyed cooking and taking care of her family. She liked making traditional dishes and teaching her children about their heritage. Tina said she loved people and she trusted them. She'd do anything she could to help you out. She'd never turn someone away. She just didn't have it in her. Martha was very family-oriented and loved to stay home with her family, but occasionally her demons reappeared. Dave said he thought she headed for the bars for more than just the alcohol. She sought companionship at the bar. When Martha drank, she liked to go to the 4th Avenue bars in downtown Anchorage. Crime rates were high near the downtown Anchorage bars in 1996, and bartenders often overserved their patrons. Investigators found little forensic evidence at the murder scene, but Martha's killer had stomped on her. So detectives had his boot prints from her body as well as from the ground around her body. They also found long human hairs tangled in a nearby tree. They weren't sure whether the hairs belonged to Martha or her killer because her murderer had burned both her pubic hair and the hair on her head. The police also noted a depression in the dirt near the body where the killer had sat while he defiled Martha's dead body. Detective Nick Vanderver and the other investigators assigned to the case were determined to catch the monster who did these horrible things to Marty. Anchorage Police Department Captain Bill Gifford decided to attempt an experimental technique at the crime scene. Crime scene specialists at the Anchorage Police Department had been trying for a few years to recover fingerprints from the body of a homicide victim. There could be no more damning evidence than the fingerprints of a killer on his victim. Investigators around the country had attempted this technique several times, but it rarely succeeded. Fingerprints are a combination of moisture and oil left behind when someone touches something. It isn't easy to find fingerprints on skin because the skin absorbs the print. Anchorage investigators had not yet successfully collected prints from skin, but they had learned from their mistakes. 
One of the essential things they discovered was that any attempt to recover prints should happen at the crime scene before moving the body and subjecting it to temperature changes. In this case, Gifford felt the weather conditions provided the perfect opportunity to execute this technique. It had not rained during the night, and the temperature had changed very little from the middle of the night to the morning hours. Gifford and patrolman John Daly headed to a nearby hardware store to buy heavy plastic sheeting and plastic pipe. They erected a tent over Martha's body and began fuming superglue vapors over her skin. As the vapor settled and hardened, Gifford was elated to discover a clear palm print with ridges and whorls on Martha's thigh. Not only was this the first retrieval of a handprint from human skin in Alaska, it was one of the first in the country or the world. Gifford called the police photographer who carefully photographed the print on the body. Unfortunately, police departments don't keep palm prints on file. They only store fingerprints. Still, once they had a suspect, they would be able to compare his palm print to the print on Marty's thigh. While Anchorage Police Department Captain Bill Gifford and his team worked the crime scene, detectives Nick Vandiver and Leo Branlin searched for witnesses who saw Marty with her killer on the last night of her life. They investigated Marty's family and asked about her ex-husband Dave, but he was in Nome, Alaska at the time, so they eliminated him as a suspect. They asked Marty's daughter Tina about Marty's life and learned about her struggles with alcohol. Tina told them that Marty liked to drink at the downtown bars. Tina also told the detectives that Marty usually wore an unusual watch given to her by one of her daughters. The birthstones of all six children decorated the band. The watch was not on Marty's wrist at the murder scene, so Tina drew a sketch of the watch and gave it to the detectives. The investigators learned that an acquaintance had dropped off Marty downtown, so they began canvassing the bars in the area. They showed Marty's photo to bartenders and patrons, but they had no luck until they reached the Avenue Bar, where the manager told them he remembered seeing Marty on Wednesday night, the night before her murder. He told the police that the bar had a surveillance camera outside facing the sidewalk and street, and he asked the detectives if they would like to look at the tapes. It was a stroke of luck that the camera was mounted and working correctly. The Anchorage Assembly had ordered the Avenue Bar and some other downtown Anchorage bars to install stronger outdoor lights and cameras as a condition for renewing their liquor licenses. Police had cited the bar numerous times for serving intoxicated patrons. The bar's manager had just installed the camera a few months earlier, but no one anticipated using the video footage to find a murderer. Nick Vandiver watched hour after hour of grainy video footage, searching for any sign of Marty. Finally, after staring at the monitor for nine hours, Martha Hansen walked onto the screen. She was wearing a plaid shirt and dark stretch pants. She walked into the Avenue Bar and left four minutes later. She seemed slightly unsteady on her feet. Seconds later, a man walked on screen, but only his back was visible. 
The man had long hair, dark on the top and blonde on the ends. He and Martha met, interlaced arms, and walked off screen. It was the last time anyone except her killer saw Marty Hansen alive. Vanderbilt produced photos from the grainy video of Martha and her companion. Now he had a suspect, and the man's long hair might be a match for the hair they'd found on a branch at the murder scene. Vandiver and Branlin began showing the man's grainy photo to patrons and bartenders in the downtown bars, but no one seemed to recognize him. On the way back to the police station, the detectives happened to see a man with long, bleached hair standing in the downtown bus transit center. Vandiver said, Look at that guy. That looks like our suspect. The detectives approached the man and asked him if he knew Martha Hansen. He said he didn't know her, so they showed him their photo. The man told the police that he wasn't the person in the picture, but he said he could identify the man in the photo. His name was Evans Lee Curtis. The police now had a name and a palm print. They knew they were closing in on Evans Lee Curtis. They only had to find him. Curtis did not have a permanent address, so the police went to his mother's house, and his brother gave them the address of a place where Evans frequently stayed. The detectives went to the address given them by Curtis's brother and talked to a young man and young woman. They said Curtis sometimes stayed there, but they hadn't seen him in quite a while. One detective left a card with his contact information and asked the couple to call if they saw Curtis. A few hours later, a 16-year-old girl called police headquarters and said she was the sister of the girl whom the detectives had talked to earlier. She asked the police to come back to the house because she had information. She told the detectives that Curtis had come to their apartment a few nights earlier. He had blood on his clothes and said he'd gotten into a fight. The policeman asked the girl what happened to the bloody clothes, and she said, they were still in the laundry room at the house. The girl also told the police that the same night Curtis arrived with blood on him, he gave her sister an unusual watch for a belated birthday present. When the investigators looked at the timepiece, they knew they had found Marty's missing watch. The distinctive design with her children's birthstones matched the drawing made by Marty's daughter, Tina. The fact that Evans Lee Curtis had Marty's watch erased any lingering doubt in the detectives' minds. Evans Lee Curtis was their murderer. They obtained a search warrant for his palm print and asked the newspaper to publish a photo of him. They asked anyone who saw Curtis to let them know because he was wanted for questioning. The detectives received many calls reporting sightings of Curtis, but he was always on the move and they could not pin him down. Then, a man called and said Curtis was staying with him. Detectives hurried to the residence, but just before they arrived, Curtis climbed out a back window and ran into the woods. The police formed a grid search and brought in canine units to search the wooded area. They eventually captured Curtis and hauled him to jail. Once the investigators got Curtis back to police headquarters, fingerprint technicians rolled Curtis's palm in ink. 
To Captain Gifford's delight, Curtis's palm print matched the one retrieved with superglue fumes from Marty's thigh. His hair also matched the hair found on the branch at the murder scene. The blood found on the clothes the 16-year-old girl had given them, as well as blood discovered on some of the Curtis's clothes left in the closet at the last place where he stayed, all matched Marty's blood. Analysts positively matched Curtis's boots to the boot prints on Marty's chest, and blood on the bottom of the boots also belonged to Martha Hansen. Gifford looked forward to introducing the palm prints at Curtis's trial because the print would set precedence not only in Alaska but in the entire U.S. for the acceptance as evidence of finger and palm prints recovered from human skin. The trial did not happen, though. Evans Lee Curtis surprised prosecutors and detectives by pleading guilty to the first-degree murder of Martha Hansen. The judge sentenced him to 99 years in prison. When asked why he killed Marty, he said he was drunk and couldn't remember the incident. Marty's family was shocked when they learned the identity of the man who had tortured, raped, and killed their mother. Evansley Curtis was a casual family friend who often stopped by their house. He was the same age as Tina, and she thought of him as a nice guy and someone she could trust. The investigators in this case did a great job of quickly finding Marty's killer and locking him away where he could not hurt another woman. While Gifford performed the magic trick of finding a palm print on Marty's skin, Vanderveer tediously combed through nine hours of grainy surveillance footage until he saw Marty with her killer. The detectives weren't finished, though. On their day off, they met downtown in the overgrown area where Curtis had attacked and killed Marty. They rolled up their sleeves and went to work, clearing away the brush and destroying at least one illegal party place in the middle of Anchorage. Thank you for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you to my patrons for your support. Check out the show notes for more information on how you can support this podcast and unlock extra episodes by joining the Last Frontier Club. You can also search for this podcast on Patreon to learn more about the Last Frontier Club. I'll see you soon for the next episode of Murder and Mystery in the Last Frontier. Thank you.